0: it's bruce and connie here from unlocking the magic we just found out some really sad news late last night early this morning about marty sklar's passing it was very very sudden and we're very very crushed
1: yeah i came downstairs today and i didn't hear about it last night but i heard about it this morning and i just immediately sat down and felt extremely sad just saw him at d23 and he looked so happy and his stories were so he, – he memorized his stories like he could tell you the stories of what 50 years ago like they just happened yesterday.
0: Yeah, they were so vibrant.
1: And he's such a great storyteller and he had a great perspective on the company and what he's done there. So, I mean, I just wanted to kind of go back and recap – our interview with him and reshare his story because I really want to get it out to as many people as possible
0: reshare reshare if you guys can share this episode it would be super super special not for us at unlocking the magic but for Marty and what he's done throughout his lifetime it's really important for us to uh, it, it's up to us to be able to share these stories so that our generation the young generation be behind us will grow up with these kind of stories.
1: Yeah, I mean, Marty worked hand in hand with Walt and he had a great message to share and we want to be able to help spread that message about, you know, what the company stands for and Marty was such an integral part of, of building that company and everything that he did there was so legendary that, you know, it's it's important to get that out there and especially in his books. Like, he, he did a great job of writing those books. Those books are very entertaining and educational And if you haven't had a chance to read those yet, I definitely suggest that you go pick them up.
0: He was one of the few people that was fortunate enough to attend all Disney Park openings in the world from 1955, from from the original Disneyland. I mean, you could just see and feel the true passion that he had for everything he did.
1: And even though he technically retired a long time ago, still involved in the Disney community and... Going to talks and meetings. I mean, he still had things coming out in the future. Like he had scheduled uh, invitation dinners and he was writing a new book. He's still such a lively guy that it's all of a sudden to have this happen is just shocking.
0: Bob Iger said it perfectly just recently. Everything about Marty was legendary his achievements, his spirit, and his career. He embodied the very best of Disney, from his bold originality to his joyful optimism and relentless drive for excellence. He was also a powerful connection to Walt himself. No one was more passionate about Disney than Marty, and will miss his enthusiasm, his grace, and his spirit.
1: Uh, that was pretty well said.
0: Very, very humbling.
1: So let's just here's a here's our interview with. Disney Imagineer, and Disney legend, Marty Sklar.
0: But we have today with us someone very special, someone that we have admired for many, many years. He is the original Imagineer. He's the author of Dream It, Do It, My Half Century, Creating Disney's Magic Kingdoms, and most recently, and maybe my most favorite, newest book, One Little Spark, Mickey's Ten Commandments, and the Road to Imagineering, you guessed it, Marty
1: Sklar. Um, Marty, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. We are big fans. I think, I i don't think, I bought your first book, Dream It, Do It, at the writer's stop at Hollywood Studios uh, many years ago, and I, and I think I read the whole book while we were on vacation because I started to read it, and I couldn't put it down. It was just a really great book. And then when we got your second book, One Little Spark... Um, it really encompasses the philosophy that we try to have with our kids, which is try to find what you like to do. And I love the, the part in the book where you talked or through emails and letters with all the Imagineers about you know their tips and ideas because they get asked all the time about how to become an Imagineer and what they would do if they could kind of do it all over again. I love that part of the book. Yeah,
2: thank you. That was important to me that the book not be just about me, but rather about how so many different Imagineers have taken so many different paths to get where they are, because there's no formula, there's no one way, and uh, young people can't look for that one way because uh, a lot of things are individual to the uh, person that is doing it and the talents of that person. So it was important to get all those perspectives, I think.
1: Yeah, it was great to read their different perspectives. It's great to read because as a parent, um, we tend to push our kids in a certain direction, even though that may be what we want, but not what they want. And it's important for the kids to kind of find out what they like to do on their own.
2: Well, one nice part about the book that I've enjoyed, I've heard from four or five different um, schools that they're using it as a text. And uh, including a couple of college courses. So uh, I think it, uh, it did what it was intended to do. Yeah, it was, it the- was a
0: really, yes, very, I couldn't put the book down. And actually, after I got finished reading with it, uh, Bruce read it. And now our 14 year old uh, has picked it up and she's reading it. So it really um, is a special book that you can share with all, uh, with the whole family, which I really, I really love.
2: Thank you very much. I appreciate that.
1: Um, So for anybody who hasn't heard your backstory, can you bring us back to the first day when you're in college and the Walt Disney Company calls you and says, hey, we want to have you interview for a job? That must have been a scary part for your career.
2: Well, it was kind of um, confusing in in one sense because I was uh, living at my fraternity while I went to to, uh, UCLA, and uh, I w- didn't. I wasn't there when the call came in from a carb Walker, and a message was left for me. And I thought one of my fraternity brothers was playing a joke on me <laughs> because he was. Uh, uh, his father at the time was one of the people who ran the Desert Inn in Las Vegas, and the only part I could think of was uh, had to do, do with. Uh, Somebody dealing cards in Vegas or something. So I just I didn't even answer, re, answer the the uh, return the call. Fortunately, oh Mr. Fortunately, Mr. Walker called me back, and it turned out to be E. Cardin Walker, who was then a, the head of marketing for the studio and the movies and and uh, uh, the beginnings of Disneyland and. Uh, he asked me to come in for an interview, which I did, and they hired me uh, it's the, it's the uh, summer after my junior year, uh, and I went to work at Disneyland a month before Disneyland opens.
1: That's amazing. Were you nervous in your interview? What was the interview process like? Did you did you meet Walt Disney in the interview or after you already started working there?
2: No, I met Card Walker and one of his associates called, uh, his name was was Jimmy Johnson and he ran the record company uh, and uh, they they were the ones that interviewed me and the good news I guess was that uh, hard was he, was a UCLA graduate so that was part of uh, the reason that uh, I guess they uh, when they went looking for uh, some somebody to do this job which uh, the whole uh, idea was to have uh, and a uh, tabloid newspaper uh, Walt wanted to do on Main Street at Disneyland the first summer, and I had uh, just uh, uh, I I was about to be the editor of the Daily Bruin uh, newspaper, student newspaper at UCLA, so I guess I had the right formula. And subsequently, I, uh, somebody in the archive sent me a memo that. Uh, Uh, Ed Ettinger, who became my first boss at Disneyland, sent to Walt about having found someone to edit this newspaper. It's a very short memo, but it's kind of interesting. It goes back to uh, June of 1955.
1: And what was... So the newspaper that you were writing for Disneyland, what was the stories involved? How did you come up with those stories?
2: Well, Walt wanted to... uh, Kind of like the windows on Main Street. you yeah. know. He wanted to thank so many people for having helped him accomplish what he wanted to do with Disneyland. So the newspaper was really, it was about, uh, I think it was 28 or 32 pages, and uh, it was uh, really a, a, the story of Disneyland and a tribute to a lot of the people that had, had uh, um, helped him ma- make... Uh, Disneyland possible, and uh, my my favorite uh, piece was uh, I got um, one of the um, I, I can't think of his name at the moment, but he was a uh, a writer at the studio, wonderful writer, uh, and he wrote a column called Under the Gaslights. Yeah, uh, he was a publicity writer who uh, was. Oh, at retirement age actually oh, I, now I remember his name his name was Jack Youngmeyer with a J J-U-N-D Meyer Youngmeyer and uh, he was really a good writer and he, he wrote a column called Under the Gaslights which was about um, having come down to Disneyland and, and seeing Walt wandering all by himself and, and uh, the nostalgia of uh, Walt having created uh, this place that meant so much to him and and reminded, in some sense, of the, for example, Main Street, uh, reminded him so much of his boyhood uh, home in Marceline, Missouri. So, uh, it, you know, I, I was fortunate in having access to some of the really good writers at the studio who helped me with the... Uh, Newspaper, And there was a lot of material that had been written, of course, for publicity purposes that I had access to. and So, you know, it's pretty heady stuff for me. I was 21 years old at the time. And uh, uh, actually, I started in June, mid-June of 1955, a month before Disneyland opened. And two weeks after I went to work, I had to present the concept for this newspaper to the Walt Disney. Wow! And uh, as you can imagine, I'm 21 years old, never worked professionally. And I was scared as hell. I really <laughs> was. Uh, but but um, I've I, I reflected on that many times subsequently in you know, all the years that I've passed, and I realize now that that uh, that was. Probably the turning point in my career. Uh, the first thing I ever did professionally. Because if uh, if Walt didn't like what I had presented, he would have they would have gotten a, one of the pros at the studio to do this newspaper. This but he really liked what I had presented, so I got to stay. <laughs> I got to stay for fifty some years.
1: Wow. Do you remember what you presented to Walt Disney? Like what what the concept was.
2: Oh, sure. It was a tabloid newspaper, and and uh, one of the things that I had the good fortune of uh, at, at UCLA, um, I knew we used a printer who uh, knew um, about a, a type house in Hollywood that had the, all the old-fashioned wood box types that they used to use around the turn of the century, so I was able to go to, to that uh, type house and, and actually used some of those uh, old authentic woodblock types that they used to use in newspapers around the turn of the century. Oh wow! The turn of the of the twentieth century. Uh, so uh, it had an authentic look. And then uh, one thing that was interesting was uh, there was a shop on uh, Main Street. It's where the hat shop is in town square now and uh, it was where the strollers and wheelchairs at that time uh, were rented and also you could go in and they had a a little printer and uh, we would leave the headline off the newspaper and uh, you could get your name printed and you know Bruce and Connie visit Disneyland Wow and uh, so that was a nice souvenir for people too.
1: I wonder if there's any of those left around anywhere.
2: Gosh, I don't know. I never even had it done for me. Oh, you didn't? <laughs> <laughs> no. So thing, when you're when you're working on all these things, you don't take the time to yeah to uh, do the kinds of things that uh, except as an example, when we when we try to roll something out, we do try to. Uh, uh, experience what the guest is going to uh, receive or, or experience
1: right you think of it as the, the person making it but you don't really think of the person using it like you wouldn't go there and write your own newspaper marty was at disneyland that just not something that you would do but we would do that as the consumer
2: i wish i had done it though
1: i know huh <laughs> Yeah, uh,
0: it would have been a good souvenir. <laughs>
1: <laughs> How long did you do the new Disneyland newspaper? How long were you on that part of the job?
2: Well, I only worked the first summer uh, uh, in the PR department at Disneyland, uh, and then I went back to school because I still had my senior year to finish, which I did, and and I went to work uh, during my senior year for uh, uh, an advertising great publication in Los Angeles. I worked maybe uh, six or eight months for them. And then after I graduated, I uh, went back to Disneyland in the fall of 56. And then uh, stayed till I retired in uh, 2009.
1: Wow. When you were in college, were your college, uh, the people who went to school with you, were they uh, like fascinated with the fact that you worked for Disneyland and you know have met Walt Disney, where they asked you all kinds of questions and where
2: they uh, like. Happy? I was thinking, yeah. you were you a celebrity? <laughs> yes,
1: that's what I was trying to say.
2: Well, not not so much uh, because um, Disneyland was brand new then, and uh, a lot of students that that I knew had not even been to Disneyland by that time, mm-hmm. uh, and so it. It, if, if it were today, it would be very, very different. Right. But uh, at that time, uh, there was uh, not as much knowledge about uh, Disneyland, and, and yeah, there were a few people that, that knew that what I'd done and, and uh, were interested in knowing more, but uh, it wasn't anything like it is today.
1: Right. And then you transitioned into writing for Walt Disney. What was that like?
2: Well, that was quite an unusual opportunity because when I came back in the fall of 56, um, Walt wanted to start communicating about uh, future projects and also about uh, opportunities for sponsors because that's Sponsorship money was important to create new attractions. So uh, I was, even though I was in the publicity department at Disneyland, I was kind of loaned to WED, WED Enterprises, which was uh, Walt's company that he had formed in 1952 to design Disneyland. And uh, I did three, uh, I guess you'd call them booklets more than brochures. One was called Disneyland USA, and it was the story of Disneyland. It was really aimed at at, uh, sponsors. And then there were two more. One was called uh, uh, Edison Square, Uh, and uh, it was... uh, Walt wanted to do a street uh, off Main Street that was based on uh, uh, Thomas Edison. And the advent of electricity, and so that that brochure was probably more General Electric than anything. Um, and uh, <coughs> excuse me. ultimately, that uh, became the story of the Carousel Progress for the New York World's Fair. Um, but at the time, it was thought of as a as a walk through the street, kind of like. Um, Um, Greenfield Village that Henry Ford had done in uh, in Dearborn, Michigan. And then the other was uh, about Liberty Square and uh, Walt wanted to do a a, a street, another uh, street off Main Street, uh, based on uh, the advent of the country and the constitution. And of course that became Liberty Square at at, in the Magic Kingdom and Walt Disney World ultimately yeah. but I uh, that that put me in touch w- working with all the great people at WED and it was the first time I worked with uh, Dick Irvine who ran um, the design company and Bill Cottrell who was the president of WED John Hentz, Herb Ryman and Claude Coates and all those great people that became my colleagues later, but it was the first time I had uh, worked uh, with them.
1: It's amazing to us to hear you mention those names because they're you know Disney legends and you hear about those people and you worked with them. For us it's you know it's a legend, but for you it's you know what you did for so many years.
2: Well, you know it was a lesson that I never forgot that here I was uh, gosh, I was 22, 23 years old. And uh, as long as Walt or Dick Irvine um, put me on a project, they accepted me as though I'd been there 30 years. And, and because they, they just said, well, if uh, Walt put Marty here, you must know what he's doing <laughs> right right. So uh, I, I never forgot that because uh, I think it carried over, in my whole career in leadership at Imagineering, particularly during the Epcot project, where we had so many young people uh, really doing something for the first time and taking a chance that they could accomplish what we needed them to do. And I think a lot of that came from the acceptance that I had from the John Henches and the Herb Rymans and the Claude Coates and Mark Davis and... Lane Gibson and so many more
1: that's amazing it's amazing to hear you say those names now Walt Disney had a knack for putting people in the right spot even if they maybe didn't think they were a good fit there what made you what made what made him so good at that do you know is do you have an answer for that
2: well I think Walt was willing to take a chance on people as well as projects and um, hes he knew his talent. I mean, I always <laughs> I, I always said that Claude coats of Mark Davis would never go to lunch with each other but when you put them together on, to do Pirates of the Caribbean it was magic, you know? Yeah. Because Claude's skills were, were things like uh, laying out a ride and determining where the different uh, characters should go and then Mark's skill was Doing all the gags and and the, the humor and and the wonderful characters that he created, uh, and so when you mix those two things together, it was really terrific because you were putting two uh, of the, the best ever talents uh, together to do something. Yet they they were not friends; they were not close to each other, and it didn't matter, you know. Because
1: uh, they didn't have to go to lunch with each other to do the kind of thing that all needed from them. That's awesome. Now, what, you you
0: got it, Connie. I was I was wondering what it's like reflecting now, Marty. What it's what is it like for you when you visit the parks now? Can you go into the parks now, sort of incognito, or is it really hard for you to visit as a as a guest?
2: It's probably easier now than when my kids were young, because uh, when, my, when my two, my son, Howard, and my daughter, Leslie, when they were young, after a while, they didn't want to go to the parks with me, and I, I couldn't figure out why, and it wasn't until much later, when they were well grown up, that they told me, and they said, you know what, you walked we walk down Main Street with you, and you pick up trash. And, <laughs> and uh, if somebody is taking a picture with their family, you stop and say, uh, could I take that picture for you, uh, Etc. They said, they said, well, it would take us a half an hour to get down Main Street. <laughs> so we didn't have any of the fun. That
0: <laughs> we- all the other guests were enjoying. You were working. I- <laughs>
1: It, it was like part. Uh, it was part of your life at that point. Like that was just what you did. It wasn't. A, it was the second. It wasn't the second thought for you.
2: Well, sure, because you know it's hard when you create these things. It's it's hard to go and not look for the things that are not being operated uh, the way you'd like to see them, or something that wasn't properly maintained, or whatever it is that um, something that's out of sync and in, in uh, narration or something like that. And those are the things that, that you're more aware of than, than uh, any of the guests are. The Guests might not even notice any of those, those things. And uh, yet, that's what we're trained, that's what we did, and we know how something is supposed to run, and, and if it isn't being run that way, and by the way, the parks do a great job. They really do. Yeah. Some of the shows that I've written about, um, like my my favorite maintenance uh, job is in Epcot on the American Adventure. I, I, they've done such a spectacular job of keeping that show pristine and running just the way it was when when we left it originally, and they're so proud of it. And uh, so, so that kind of dynamic. Between the designers and and the operators is really a key to so much of uh, why Disney the Disney parks work so well for our guests.
1: It is truly amazing. When now let me ask you, I have a, I'm curious about this one myself because I know how hard writing is, and when you write for uh, a man like Walt Disney, who is known to be, for being a perfectionist, was it hard to write his speeches in? The things that he was going to talk about, and how long I I was—I'm curious about how long that process took, and how many times you went back and forth, and where it began. So much information that I I would love to know about that.
2: Well, as far as I know, Walt only uh, made one real speech, and I didn't write it. It was uh, uh, to the theater owners of America. What I wrote, I wrote for uh, uh, for some television things. Uh, and uh, the film about Walt as the World in Epcot. And I did Walt's uh, messages for the annual report uh, for about four years, company's annual report, and then all the souvenir guides and special things we did to market the parks that I used to do. You know, and it started out where um, I would um, either meet with him and get a sense of what he wanted to do or... Um, send him a note um, suggesting some things but after a while um, he trusted me enough so that for example on the annual reports um, Bobby Moore who was the art director at the studio uh, for marketing things and, and I would sit down with Roy Disney because of the, the annual, annual report was just, at first was Almost all a financial reports. We turned it into a marketing uh, job with messages from Walt and Roy and a lot of uh, publicity kind of things. So uh, we would sit down with with Roy and and then come up with a uh, with a theme for the annual report. And then I would write Walt's piece without after a while without even talking to him, and then send it to him. Uh, so that kind of trust was was really important over time, and and something that I really valued for quite a bit that he trusted me to be able to do this without uh, uh, without even sitting down with him. And then I get notes back, of course, and uh, and things he he wanted to emphasize or change or whatever it was.
1: Much different than now because it was really notes; it wasn't emails or text messages or anything like that.
2: Oh, no, you know, you'd have to write a a memo and and, uh, have a secretary type it, and, my God, the carbon paper, and a different world, I'll tell you.
1: Now, I wonder if Walt could have envisioned what what Disney World and Disneyland and the Disney company as a whole uh, has come to be now, because he always had... You know, he was always looking to the future, but he was really a nostalgic type of person as well. Do you think that he envisioned what it, be, what it is now? Is that something that he could have foreseen in the future for the Walt Disney Company when he was alive?
2: Well, I don't think he'd be very much surprised. In fact, um, I was asked numerous times while I was working, uh, what would Walt think, you know? And I never answered that question. Until we finally did, uh, when we did Hong Kong Disneyland, and somebody asked me the question in uh, Cantonese, and so it was being interpreted. I had a little time to think about it. And uh, finally said, they said, what would Walt think? And I said, well, Walt would say, what took you so long?
0: (laughs) Oh, that's too funny. (laughs) That's hilarious.
2: Because he was impatient, but I remember... Uh, for a, a, a for the presentation that I wrote for him uh, when uh, Walt and Roy announced uh, with Governor Burns announced the Walt Disney World project in 1965, um, we we uh, did a search and got the interpret the uh, uh, his the. The way his uh, foreign television was was done. So, in other words, we used a lot of uh, uh, French and and Japanese. Walt being uh, uh, Walt talking uh, on those television shows that had at the time they were not uh, they were all uh, done with a voiceover that was supposed to be Walt's voice. And so we had 22 different uh, uh, languages, and this was 1965. So, wow. you know, Disney was worldwide then uh, already. So, it was only time, It was only a matter of time before the parks also became worldwide. Um, and uh, so that that really, I don't think it would have surprised Walt at all that, uh, uh, the, the worldwide impact of what he had started.
1: Yeah. He was really a great entrepreneur, even in, even in today's standards.
0: So back to your book, um, you know, reading the book, it's really super interesting. It's almost as if you read my mind when we received the book, it, Unlocked a lot of the attractions that you had uh, hands-on experience with, and some flops um, that you shared, which I thought was really interesting to see that kind of insight. But what I was curious: what was your favorite attraction that you worked on? Do you have one?
2: (laughs) Oh boy!
0: (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) it's like
1: saying your your favorite child.
0: Right, exactly. I just realized it as I said out loud that that's going to be a really tough question to answer.
2: Well, you know, uh, I always have been asked many times about my favorite park, and of course, Disneyland is that because it's the only one that Walt ever walked in. Number one, number two, it was the foundation for everything that was done subsequently around the world. Twelve other, uh, twelve parks in total now with Shanghai, uh, which is, by the way, is a fabulous park, really wonder, wonderful to take advantage of uh, everything Disney's done in the parks over time. And the Pirates uh, attraction is really unbelievable. It's really fantastic. Um, but of course, I, and I have a hard time saying not Saying Epcot was my favorite project because we spent uh, eight years uh, from the time we started to the time we opened, and uh, there was no precedent for it because all the other parks were fantasy based, and here was a park that was uh, reality based, if you will. Right, um, as someone had said, the, the other parks a hey, uh, uh, Fantasy real and and Epcot makes reality fantasy in many ways. Huh. Uh, and uh, so, you know, Epcot is pretty close to to uh, my favorite. Uh, and And one of my favorite attractions is the Land Pavilion in in uh, Epcot because it has a story that's important to tell about food production. Uh, around the world, and and then you go into this area where you're, you're ex- actually seeing the food growing. And uh, then, to take it another step, you can go into the restaurant in the, in the land and uh, eat the food that we're growing yeah. there. That, to me, that is... Uh, it's a demonstration of what really... what Walt really wanted to accomplish with the whole community of that... We'd I'm lo- so
0: excited that you mentioned the land pavilion because that is our ultimate favorite in Epcot. Oh, yeah, that,
2: that's mine. I Absolutely. Love,
1: I get overwhelmed looking around at all the different vegetables and fruits that they grow and how they grow. It's amazing to see all that stuff.
2: Oh, yeah. I'm, I think back to uh, we did a quarter-scale uh, demonstration of that at the University of Arizona where uh, Dr. Carl Hodges, uh, was really the one that helped us uh, create that growing uh, area, and uh, we we walked through a uh, quarter of the the whole uh, ride laid out. And when we were finished, uh, Carl Hodges said to me, "He said now, where do we keep the bees?"
1: <laughs>
2: and I I said, "Carl, we're in an open boats, no bees." And he said, "Well, how are we going to?" How are we going to pollinate the food? And I said, you know something, Carl. We're story people here. You are the technologist. You're going to tell me how you're going to pollinate the food. <laughs> exactly. That's funny. You they, never, you never really think about that while you're
1: riding the attraction.
2: Well, they have to hand pollinate all of that. Yeah. And about, uh, I think it's about once or twice a week they have to go through and and uh, pollinate all,
0: all that food so it keeps growing. Wow. That's awesome. That's incredible. And we love taking the kids on that attraction. And one thing that we love about all the parks is that we feel that the kids are enjoying themselves, they're being entertained, but they're also learning something. Um, and it makes it really special. It's It's a way for us to connect as a family, and that's one of the reasons why we love going to Disney World, Often and that land pavilion is a must-do every time.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I think it's very, uh, very special, and you know, um, one of the things that that uh, we can you can you trace with so many different attractions, not just in Epcot, but a, but in Epcot particularly, is that uh, learning can be fun. Yeah. And uh, we can make it fun. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, you can uh, be serious about certain certain things, tell serious stories. The American Adventure is a wonderful example of of that. And yet, at the same time, it's entertainment, it's fun, and, and it's an experience like uh, that. That uh, um, the ride through in the land is is an experience that you can't have anywhere else. And I think those are the kinds of things that Disney. Um, is so good at doing.
1: Yeah, And we talk about that on the show a lot. Just you know, many times people go to Disney World and or Disneyland or any of the parks, and they try to do as much as they possibly can. And we always say, you know, what? Take a step back, relax a little bit, slow down, and and take a look around because there's so many more messages that you'll find if you do that way than trying to just go from attraction to attraction.
2: Yeah, I learned uh, something early uh, on at Walt Disney World. I think it was the first time I took both my kids and their families and uh, uh, I had a whole schedule set up and uh, the third day um, at dinner the the night before, I guess the end of the second day, I said to uh, everybody now, tomorrow here's what our schedule is and my son said to me, Tomorrow, we're sitting by the pool.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. That sounds like
2: Connie. (laughs) Here's the thing. If you go to Walt Disney World and you say, I'm going to try to do everything here, you're going crazy. Yeah, there's so much to do. You can't do it. You've got to pick it shoes and say, okay, this trip I'm going to do such and such and such and such. And the next trip I'll save for doing this and that. And you'll have a much better time if you schedule yourself that
1: way. Right, we're actually making our first trip to Disneyland. We've been to Disney World many, many, many times, but we're making our first trip to Disneyland in two weeks.
2: Oh, well, congratulations! Thank you. We're um, very, very excited. Yeah,
1: very, we're we're in Boston, so we're kind of far away from the uh, Los Angeles, California area. But uh, we're making the trek out there, which is going to be our first trip. The kids are really excited to. Like you said, walk the park that Walt Disney actually saw and walked in.
2: Yeah, you'll find Disneyland is a—it's uh, um, a much more—I um, don't want to say—it's—it's it, it's much. Things are much closer together. The big spaces, the things that we did at Walt Disney World, and later, where you, you realize how many people you had to uh, handle. In those early days, uh, the Imagineers really uh, didn't have the experience to know if, that they were going to get 15 million people a year coming through this place. Right. So things are a lot uh, closer together, and there's some nice uh, little off sort of beaten path places that you can, you can go at Disneyland, and it's it's a really nice feeling.
0: I'm looking forward to it. I'm a very nostalgic person myself, so just being able to be at the exact park where you know it all started is just a true honor and such an honor to have you on our show, Marty. I can't thank you enough.
1: And we're definitely going to spread the word about your book, One Little Spark, Mickey's Ten Commandments and the Road to Imagineering. It's a really great book for you, your family, everybody in your family. It's a great read. Um, I highly recommend it.
2: Well, thank you. It's been fun talking to
1: you. Thank you so much, Marty. We really appreciate you taking your time out of your day. It's really an honor for us to have you and talk to you. It's, it's maybe. Your- uh,
0: yeah, I, I said I, I was nervous in the beginning, but like you said, it's just it's just a talk between three. I feel like we're friends now. And-
2: <laughs> <laughs> See, you can be very
1: relaxed on the
0: telephone. <laughs> yeah, right? Much
1: yeah. more nervous in person, definitely.
0: I was just going to say, although it would be incredible to meet someday in person...
2: Well, thank you very much. I'd like to do that.
1: All right. Thank you, Marty, so much for joining us. I hope you have a great day.
2: Okay. You you guys, too. Thank you. Thank you.